Stay hungry, stay foolish. As the forces of globalization, automation, and artificial intelligence combine to disrupt every field and every career, having a good idea isn't good enough. Mastering the ancient art of persuasion is the key to standing out, getting ahead, and achieving greatness in the modern world. Communication is no longer a soft skill, it is the human edge that will make you unstoppable, irresistible, and irreplaceable, earning you that perfect rating, that fifth star. Today's guest is the best-selling author of many titles, including Talk Like Ted, The Presentation Secrets of Steve Jobs, The Storyteller's Secret, and the focus of today's show, Five Stars, The Communication Secrets to Get from Good to Great, Carmine Gallo, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aidan. Thank you very much for inviting me. I know that you and I share a passion for communication and storytelling, so this will be fun. You know, I followed your work from the early days, and in the earlier books, I've read by you, you focused on individual storytellers. But with this book, it feels like you've zoomed out to form a framework for success based on the speaking skills of the world's best speakers. I think that's a very interesting observation. Thanks for making that. I, you're absolutely right. I did begin by studying great communicators like Steve Jobs. So that was one of my first big public speaking books, The Presentation Secrets of Steve Jobs. At the time, Aiden, you may recall, I had never used the word storyteller. I wasn't thinking about storytelling. And yet everything we do, and, and that's who I am in my career, we're storytellers. And Steve Jobs, now that I look back, was the world's greatest corporate storyteller of all time. The reason why I think Five Stars is an important book is because what I've learned from studying Steve Jobs or Richard Branson or John Chambers, uh, now people like Bill Gates, many others who are taking complexity and making them interesting to understand. And throughout history, all the great communicators throughout history, the common theme is that we already know how to persuade, how to communicate. The formula for persuasion and storytelling was handed to us more than 2,000 years ago by a really smart guy named Aristotle. That's why I call it the ancient art of persuasion, combining words and ideas to move people to action. That's the key to standing out today more than ever. But everything we talk about today, Aiden, will harken back to something that Aristotle first offered to us in some of his work called the rhetoric. Almost everything about communication today we can find in the ancient scripts. And the reason for that, and here's the key, everything about technology has changed. The way we communicate has changed. You and I are using a new platform that a year ago wasn't available. So the way we communicate with each other across continents has changed. The human brain has not. So if you can understand how the human brain processes information, then that's how you'll stand out and get ahead as an entrepreneur, a CEO, or a leader. Persuasion's at the very heart of this book, I felt. And you talk about a recent study that shows persuasion is so fundamental to GDP in countries now. It's a competitive advantage having the art of persuasion. 
here's the fascinating part about that. And I know what you're referring to in the book, Five Stars. I refer to two different studies, one in America, one in uh, Australia that can't reach the same conclusion that the persuasion is a growing part of the total economy, the total GDP. And I had a hard time kind of wrapping my head around that. I didn't quite understand what that meant. I had read a couple of academic papers on it, so I decided to call the one of the economists at the University of Illinois uh, to talk about it specifically. Her name is Deirdre McCloskey. She conducted an impressive amount of research to prove that old-fashioned rhetoric, persuasion, she calls it sweet talk, Aiden, sweet talk. One person convincing another person to do something. <laughs> to, to, to buy a product, to buy a service. Not to be confused with pillow talk. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, there's a little persuasion involved in getting to pillow talk. Too. <laughs> so that's the point. <laughs> that's the next book, man. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. You and I will talk about that afterwards. <laughs> Good idea. McCloskey looked at 250 occupations in the U.S., looking at 140 million civilians. And she eliminated those jobs where persuasion maybe plays a small role. Firefighters, construction laborers, home appraisers. Even though to get those jobs, you still have to be persuasive. You still have to tell a story about your experience. But those jobs aren't day-to-day persuasion. And then she looked at many other categories, too, where 90% of their time is devoted to persuading somebody. Lawyers, public relations specialists, consultants who I know are a big part of your listenership. She combined all of these together, looked at a lot of mathematical formulas, and she arrived at this conclusion. So please listen carefully. This is the conclusion. Persuasion is responsible for generating one quarter of America's national income. One quarter is related to persuasion. That was years ago when she first did her research. Another Australian economist tried to do something similar in Australia, found that it was about 30%. And recently, Deidre McCloskey said persuasion is going to count for about 40% of America's total economy over the next 10 years. May I explain in just 30 seconds why we've gotten to this period, Aiden? Think about it. The reason why we are in this incredible environment of acceleration We have made more progress than ever before. People like Bill Gates talks about this a lot. Steven Pinker talks about it. Pinker's book is Enlightenment Now, one of the the best I've read in years. But it gives you this feeling that we are living at a time of unprecedented growth and opportunity. The reason is, according to economists and historians, is because ideas build upon ideas. So you you get this mass acceleration in progress. So if you think about it, Aiden, in the 1840s, 70% of the U.S. US labor, and I'm sure in Ireland too, maybe more, was working on the farms. Today, it's less than 2% working in agriculture. So we're not, our value is not tied up in our hands. And then the Industrial Revolution happened. Our value is tied up in our hands and our factories. Now our value is tied up in our brain, in your ideas. Here's the point. If you cannot express your ideas clearly and convincingly, and in a way that inspires people and ignites their imagination and wants them to follow you, you'll be left behind. Or you'll be average. And average in today's economy is not good enough. Average only guarantees below average results. You need to stand out. 
And so I believe the way to stand out is through the way you communicate your ideas. When you think of even innovation and why your work is so important to innovation, and as you said, consultants, CEOs, C-suite executives, if somebody has an idea, and this happened to me, so I worked in innovation consultancy before, and I, I've seen, including myself, many people who work in digital transformation or organizational transformation fail, even though they know what to do, but they can't bring the organization with them. And therein lies the failure because it's not about changing business models, it's changing mental models and bringing people with you and therefore storytelling and being able to tell a vision and create a future in people's minds that they want to buy into is absolutely key to changing the world. You're absolutely right. And I talked to neuroscientists for this book. I've talked to historians and economists and billionaires and researchers in persuasion. And I'll never forget one neuro economist taught me this, and this was very interesting. He said, Carmine, you can have the greatest idea in the world, completely new and innovative and novel and different. If you can't persuade another person about your idea, it doesn't matter. That was it. That was his whole quote, Aiden. I thought, well, um, in one quote, you put it pretty succinctly. <laughs> you can have, you can have, we can have great ideas, Aiden. You can't explain it. It doesn't matter. Let's give it a great example of selling and telling an amazing story, which was, you mentioned in the book, JFK and the story of let's put a man on the moon. That actually came from uh, research that um, an academic has done at Wharton and some other places here in the U.S. Academics ha are starting to look at rhetoric and how rhetoric has moved people to action. So when JFK in 1961 and then 1963 started to articulate a vision of putting a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth by the end of the decade, that was the quote. That was the quote and the mission and the vision that started being circulated in, the 19, in 1961. And he was very consistent about that. America is going to put a man on the moon, bring him safely to Earth by the end of the decade. Very specific vision. It wasn't just a random vision, like, we should explore the stars. That doesn't, that doesn't motivate people to action. So what the academic research has shown is that by articulating a big, bold vision with a deadline, that it motivated people to take action. At the time, and this is historical, and not a lot of people may understand this, in the early 1960s, most scientists did not think that could be done. We, we were nowhere close to having the, the mathematical capability, the computational capability, and the technology to put a man on the moon. We, we did, it wasn't possible in 1961. But then, because John Kennedy was able to articulate a vision with a deadline, guess what people started doing? They started saying to themselves, well, if we had to do it by 1969, how would we make it happen? Aiden, you can't talk about innovation without talking about a chief storyteller, about someone who's going to ignite your imagination and motivate you and persuade you to take action. So yes, it all comes back to rhetoric. In the book, Five Stars, I have a whole chapter about history, going back to the American, mostly the American Revolution, starting from about that point, where every major movement, throughout all of history, but mostly in the last, you know, two, three hundred years, has been started by a persuader, one, two, or a group of people who were exceptional persuaders. 
So Thomas Jefferson writing the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson was chosen because he was a great writer, because he was able to connect evidence, this is why we need to break free from Great Britain, with emotion. The Declaration of Independence is a highly emotional document. It didn't need to be that way. It could have just been evidence. But Thomas Jefferson understood how to balance emotion, which is critical to getting people to act, and evidence. Uh, again, fascinating, but you can go throughout all, all of history. Uh, Winston Churchill was able to, and you know this history well, that he was able to turn around public opinion in May of 1940 with a series of incredible speeches, some of the greatest speeches in, in history. At the time, and historians have told me this, and it's in all the books, at the time, the appeasement was the flavor of the day in England. They wanted to appease Nazi Germany. They wanted to make a deal with Nazi Germany. And if it wasn't for a series of like four or five speeches in about a, two months' time, uh, that was the trigger that changed public opinion. Uh, so again, you can go through and JFK, like we just talked about. Aiden, you, you cannot show me a major movement in U.S. history, global history, in the last two or 300 years without a great communicator behind it sparking that movement. And I'd love to bring it back to a term you use there, chief storyteller. You and I spoke briefly before the show about organizational change or, or transformation, whether it be digital or innovation, or just transformation within an industry, which needs to happen in this era of rapid change. And again, this is where this book is so important to C-suite executives innovation workers, digital workers, CEOs who want to change how a company operates because they need to start selling that vision. And this is what really attracted me to the work today in today's era is that you need to be able to articulate that vision really, really well. And then it acts, like you said, like a ripple effect throughout an organization. So the people know what they're doing. They know what they're contributing towards. That engages them and they do more. And as you said, adding in time specificity means that they have a deadline in order to get it done and it changed their mindset towards a what's possible mindset. Can I give you a recent example of one or two CEOs who are extraordinary at being the chief storytelling officer for their brands? One is John Chambers. Now, most of your listeners are going to know who that is, uh, but for those who may have heard the name, they're not sure. He is the legendary Silicon Valley CEO of Cisco. He recently retired from Cisco, and now he's a venture capitalist, so he has his own venture capital firm, and I just talked to him a few days ago. So John Chambers took over and ran Cisco for 20 years. Here's a couple of statistics. During those 20 years, it grew phenomenally fast. It went from 400 employees to 70,000, and it went from 70 million a year in sales to 47 billion. <laughs> and, here's, and here's the key. John Chambers is now recognized around the world as a global leader and an advisor. He's an advisor to the prime minister of India, to the French president, uh, all over. He's recognized all over the world. I had this amazing opportunity, Aiden, to visit him at his home and to talk to him specifically about communication. And he, he, I want to tell you just a few things he told me. When he was at Cisco, he said, quote, I spent a lot of time thinking about how to convey a vision and a culture that was simple, compelling, 
and clearly defined. So his role, the CEO's role, and this is for all your listeners, Aiden, is to create and build and articulate an audacious goal and to communicate that strategy clearly, convincingly, and consistently. It's not enough just to have a goal. This is where we want to go. You need to be able to tell the story to create a a picture of a better world once that outcome is resolved. We're going to talk about very specifically how to do that. But the point is you have to see yourself as the chief storytelling officer. Uh, John Chambers told me, if your mission is fuzzy or primarily focused on the numbers, that's not a recipe for success. Think about that, Aiden. If it's fuzzy or not, or just focused on the numbers, that's not a, a recipe for success. So it's all about creating purpose, not products, and the sales will take care of themselves. Let me give you one example that really blew me away. Cisco Systems, 20 years ago, primarily sold hardware, routers that nobody ever saw. They were microwave-sized metal boxes that directed packets of data around the internet. That's they were a hard, they're a hardware company, primarily still are, although they have services and a lot of other technologies. It wasn't enough to sell routers. So he coined a phrase, the internet will change the way we work, live, play, and learn. The internet will change the way we work, live, play, and learn. And he started using that line and building presentations around how the internet was going to make our life better and how the internet was going to change everything about the way we work, live, play, and learn. Oh, and by the way, Cisco's hardware makes that possible. <laughs> you see what just happened, Aiden? You, you see the difference, right? It, I, I hope the, the difference is clear. He started with purpose, product second. It's the why you buy into, but again, coming back to the importance of your book and the idea of chief storytelling, that's why we're at the top of the food chain as humans on this planet right now is because we can think of a future, we can imagine a future that doesn't exist and then go and build it. But it, again, it comes back to what you say about the storytelling, bringing people with you, etc. But in there, in what you talked about, John Chambers, you talked about removing the fuzziness of it. And it brought to mind the quote, which is, if you want to double the size of your business, and you mentioned Winston Churchill earlier on, and you, rem- you mentioned also is preference to use simple language and i thought this was a really key and subtle enough mention that you have in the book is why you use simple language oh absolutely okay i'm glad you brought that up so you have to people have to read the book because there's a lot of nuggets in the book that's another extraordinary find that i i've learned over the years but specifically when i was doing the research for five stars that that this is extraordinary In order to connect with people, in order to connect with people on a much deeper, meaningful level, your words should be third to eighth grade language. So in, uh, in the U.S., we go by the grades, but grade school, elementary school. Uh, some of Steve Jobs' most impressive presentations, like the iPhone presentation in 2007, if you take the text from that and you put it into a... Uh, a computer system that is meant to aggregate text and evaluate text for textbooks to see what grade level it is. I have found most parts of that presentation are grade school level. In other words, it's hiding the complexity behind simple words, using simple words to hide the complexity. 
So I've I've known that for years, and, and I, I started writing about that, and then I did even more research, and I found a company uh, in Silicon Valley that is in a you know new technology company that's in the insurance healthcare space, and they uh, they create health insurance plans for big companies, and as you know, that's a you know major issue here in in America, especially. They have they did their own research. They did a lot of uh, algorithm research and computer research. And what they found is that if you want to communicate complex uh, plans like health insurance plans to the average person, you have to reduce your language to third grade level. And they sent me, and I still have these, they sent me all their marketing material. They sent me the scripts that their call center people use. Everything is simplified, so they don't use jargon. They don't use health insurance jargon like deductibles and all that because they find that people say they know what that means, but they don't. They, they can't explain it well. So all of their words are vi- so simple that a reader with a third-grade education can understand it. How many, Aiden, I'm going to challenge you. How many people do you know? How many CEOs do you know, especially in big organizations? that would have the courage to eliminate their, their jargon, their buzzwords, their long convoluted sentences and reduce it to that kind of simplicity. That's hard. It comes to something we talked about, which is the CEOs or, or the leaders of a business having the psychological safety to do so and, and also to be able to show vulnerability. This idea of psychological safety is huge within an organization in order to simplify your message, in order to reduce complexity, to start showing pathos and to start showing emotion, EQ and EI within an organization. It takes great psychological safety. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about psychological safety. And this gets to another key theme of of all my books, but especially this new one. And that's the origin story. Now let's get specific, because I know a lot of your listeners are thinking, okay, I should be a chief storytelling officer. What does that mean? The simplest way to start is to make sure that everybody understands the origin story. The origin story is the backstory. That is the story of, it could be personal, it could be your story, or it could be a story of another organization. It could be an external story. But here's what I mean by origin story. Why is it that you're building the product you're building? What was the original motivation for it? That couldn't be an origin story. One of my favorites is Howard Schultz, who recently retired from Starbucks. Howard Schultz I've interviewed many years ago. I think he's an extraordinary storyteller. But I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know that he used the same story. He talked about his trip to from Seattle to Milan, Italy one day where he was just captivated by the cafe culture in Italy. And he wanted to bring a sense of community back to the US. So instead of just selling coffee beans, we would create cafes where people would come together, a third place between work and home. Remember that phrase, Aiden? A third place between work and home. Think about it. Was he selling coffee? Or was he selling a story of an experience? But it had an origin to it. It had an origin. There there was a story that he could tell about his trip to Milan and what he experienced. Then he told another story. There was another origin story. I'm sure all of your listeners might recall now that I say it. Uh, Why was Starbucks one of the 
first major companies in America to offer health insurance to part-time workers? Why is it one of the, the major companies to hire veterans? Why is it the first one of the major companies uh, to pay for college education for their employees or to give stock options to part-time workers? Because when, st- when Howard Schultz, and I can repeat this story from my memory because I've heard it a million times. He says it. He talks about it a million times. His father uh, got hurt on the job. I think he, he broke his ankle. Howard Schultz grew up in a housing project in Brooklyn. I remember specific details from it. Grew up in a housing project in Brooklyn. They didn't have health insurance. They didn't have workers' comp insurance. They found it hard to make ends meet. And Howard, at the time, was only about 12 years old, and, and it was uh, such a destructive memory in his life that he said to himself, if I'm ever in a position where there's people working under me, I'll never let this happen to them. And that's why Starbucks became the first major U.S. company to offer full health benefits to part-time workers. Isn't that more interesting? And doesn't that help you connect with that man in a far deeper, meaningful way than if he were to just talk about the benefits that Starbucks offers without the why, without the origin story behind it? It's a totally different thing. Like if he, if he starts going out and go, we want to grow the business from X to Y, it doesn't engage people. And it's not something somebody will repeat because as you say, we're, we're storytelling creatures. It's in our being to tell stories and pass on stories, etc. It brings me to another great one you talk about, which is the Nike story. And again, we mentioned earlier on pathos, but this idea of pathos, Aristotle's great gift that he gave us is incorporate that struggle into our stories. I'm sure most of your listeners have read or have heard of Phil Knight's book called Shoe Dog. When you read Shoe Dog, it was a page turner and I read it all the way to the end. And there were times I was almost crying. I mean, I really got emotional reading about because Phil Knight was so spiritual. It was almost like a spiritual thing. You know, he talked about how the original Nike kind of got started and all of the hurdles that he had to overcome and selling shoes out of the, out of the back of an old beat up car, you know, things like that. And the way he talked about running made me want to feel like I want to be a runner. I mean, this is because it's so much, it's a Zen kind of spiritual transcendent experience, but you get his passion behind running. And then by the end of the book, you realize, oh, wait a minute, they're selling running shoes, aren't they? <laughs> wait, this is a running shoe company. This is a shoe company. Yeah. I'm like crying. <laughs> but the point is that he talks about himself. Phil and I talked about himself as a storyteller. And he talks about, and this is fascinating with Nike, is that they trained their managers to be the keepers of the story. When you're new to Nike or when you're walking on the campus, everything, even the way that the the names of the buildings um, and the stories that the managers are taught to tell all harken back to its history, to its origin. That's the way you connect with people and, and get them motivated because people need a bigger purpose than just the product. John Chambers told me that just the other day, too. Uh, you, you can't get people motivated around just the product. You have to have a purpose behind it. Uh, and, th- and there's a famous, you know, the famous origin story behind Nike. I'm sure you do and your listeners do. He found a solution in the kitchen, right? W- when he found the uh, the waffle iron 
And, uh, you know, he put special glue in it. And he said, well, these soles might be better if they look like a waffle iron. They have the original waffle iron in the Nike Museum there on campus. But, uh, Aiden, let's get back to innovation. What's the big deal about that story, though? What is it telling you about the mindset and the innovation mindset? It's a what's possible mindset. It's like, well, let's push the boundaries here. Let's look at something that doesn't exist and, and build it. Beautiful. Bingo. That's it. So in one story, it tells you more about innovation than a 100-deck PowerPoint slide would do. Stories and innovation. This gets back to your whole theme of your podcast. Innovation cannot happen in the absence of stories. And you mentioned something earlier on, Carmine, that we're in a knowledge economy. How we articulate, how we persuade, how we tell stories is a huge competitive advantage. But therefore, also having people who can do that is a competitive advantage, like you said about the people of Nike. But what I find from working with organizations is a lot of them are struggling to attract people, the best people. But if you have a great story, people join the story. They don't join just the person behind the story. They join the story and the legacy and, and like you said, the struggle. And I want to be part of the change in the world and making people run more and have a transcendent experience when they run. That's what people join. It's fascinating, but it gets back to emotion uh, and it gets back to the way the human brain works. The brain is constantly looking for purpose. It's looking for social. It's looking for community. Uh, Aristotle, again, 2000 years ago, he already knew this. Aristotle said that you cannot persuade another person to do anything unless three things are present. Okay, so these three elements have to be present in each and every conversation in which you persuasion is the goal. He was very clear that this will not always work, but you, it'll be more likely to work. Those three elements are, you have to have ethos. Ethos in ancient Greek meant character, credibility. So to me, Aiden, uh, that is your resume. That's your background. Those are, that, those are the bullet points. Aristotle said in order for persuasion to occur, you have to have logos, logical appeal. You have to give me the evidence. So Thomas Jefferson writing the Declaration of Independence, here is the evidence for why we believe that the king is uh, taking advantage of us. Here's the evidence. The third thing is pathos. And that's the most important element of persuasion. Pathos is emotion, connecting to people, emotion, storytelling, making someone likable, anything that's emotional, because we, and now we know this, that we know through neuroscience that in the absence of emotion, you can't make a decision. So emotion is not a bad thing. Now, Aristotle was very clear that you can actually, uh, and we see this with leaders around the world today, and I don't want to get into politics, but we see it, that, that leaders will play off people's emotions to get them riot angry and fired up about one thing or another. So uh, emotions can be played for good or for, or for harm. We don't, you know, it depends on the way you look at it. But the point is that we're all emotional beings. So you cannot uh, motivate people to do anything unless you have that combination of evidence logical appeal, and emotions. Sometimes it, you know, as we've seen in different countries these days, especially in Europe and other places, uh, sometimes the emotion kind of pushes the boundaries, right? Uh, and the, the, eventually it kind of comes back toward the middle. Uh, but yeah, you have to also, I've learned that the more you learn about emotion, the more protective you can be when you hear 
and see the rhetoric from other leaders. You're actually more protected because you understand what they're doing and how it's playing on you, why you're upset. So really fascinating. But again, you can't understand communication and storytelling without understanding emotion. You have to have all three. Aiden, when you sent me an email, you were indulging in persuasion. Don't you have to persuade me to be on this podcast? You have to persuade me to spend 45 minutes of my day, plus going back and forth Mm -hmm. ahead of time, to be on this podcast. So you had to have three things. You had to have ethos. You had to have character and credibility. That is, here's how long the innovation show has been on, and here's how many uh, listeners we've been reaching. That's the evidence. It's not enough. You have to have a logical appeal. So Carmine, I think my audience who is made up of these type of CEOs and leaders would be good for this particular content that you wrote in the book. It would be good for you too. Ah, okay, great. So now you're appealing to my reason. And then you said something like, oh, by the way, I've I've read all your books and I'm a fan of your books. Oh, okay. Well, now I like you because you flattered me. (laughs) (laughs) So you, but it is that simple sometimes. It is that simple. You, you've touched on all of them. You've given me a little evidence, but I also like you now. Flattery will always get you somewhere. That's very good. <laughs> uh, John Chambers was really good at that, by the way. He is this incredible relationship builder. He has relationships with everyone, you know, all the major leaders in the world. He's an incredible relationship builder. When I walked in to his office, he already had done some research on me. He knew I had two daughters and we talked about my daughters and, you know, he started asking me questions about my family and my life. He took an interest in me before I started asking him questions. So again, relationships, if you like someone, you're more likely to buy into whatever they want to sell or their ideas or you want to follow them. This is the big, big thing I think that's missing in education in particular in this world. So a lot of kids these days spend time on social media. They spend time gaming on social gaming, playing with their friends virtually. And therefore, they don't have that press the flesh experience. They don't develop relationships. And it's the thing they need in the future. If we're moving towards, as you said in the book, automation, artificial intelligence, the competitive edge is going to come from being more human, but authentically human, and being able to persuade and communicate well and being able to tell stories. I wrote about that in, uh, in Five Stars because I started talking to neuroscientists uh, who are in the area of AI, artificial intelligence. And they're the ones who changed the way I look at things. We are reading a lot of kind of scary stuff about how AI is going to disrupt, and it already has disrupted uh, entire industries, eliminating millions of jobs. but the AI scientists, the people actually building this stuff, are saying that the opportunities are staggering. The opportunities for each and every person on the planet to be uh, to be their own brand, you know, and, and to and to have the ability to share their ideas more quickly than ever before is, is going to open up amazing opportunities. But here's what those scientists told me. They said AI, at least in our lifetime and, and as far out in the future as they could possibly see, there's no way they can replicate being human because, as you know, an algorithm only performs the function that it is taught to perform. Uh, Gary Kasparov, who lost a, a famous chess match, said 
he was he was reeling for years. What is my role? What is the role of a human? And he realized that only humans have imagination. Computers cannot dream. They cannot dream of a, of a higher purpose than their function. So since we can dream, let's dream bigger than ever before. Uh, that was very interesting to me. Another AI scientist here in the States, uh, actually a very prominent one, uh, I had a conversation with him, and it was a fascinating conversation because I said, uh, I read that a robot can read human emotions. I said, well, well once robots and, and, and computers can read human emotions, where does that leave us? And he stopped me and he corrected me. He said, Carmine, what did you say exactly? I said, well, I heard that robots can be taught to read human emotions. He said, think about that. We, yes, it's true. A robot can be trained to look at millions of photographs and uh, predict, because AI is more of a predictive technology, predict if that face is showing sadness or happiness. That's true. We can do that. But a robot does not have human emotion. And Carmine, once you understand that, that's your book. That's your book. That's what you need to understand in order to help people to be their most uh, persuasive self and their best and the best leaders. A computer doesn't have human emotion. He said that's a fundamental difference, and you have to, don't co don't confuse the two. The future of humanity is being more human and access our human skills. Aiden, it sounds kind of contrived, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like the title of a book. Uh, you, you should be more human. The, the future of humanity is to be more human. But it's true. It, it's, it's very interesting to me because it is, it's kind of true, but it sounds counterintuitive. After I wrote this book, so it's not in five stars, recently I, re I read a book that may, some of your listeners may know. It's a New York Times bestseller called AI Superpower. It's written by an AI scientist named Kai-Fu Lee. Half of the book is about the, the fight or the, uh, the, the competition between China and Silicon Valley for leadership in artificial intelligence. But the other half of the book is the skills that people are going to need to compete in the world of AI. I had an hour-long conversation with Kai-Fu Lee, and he said, Carmine, leadership is more important than ever before. Here's the guy who invented a – he's pretty much the inventor of AI. He created an algorithm that beat a human at a game way before Watson and Jeopardy, way before that. He's been in AI for his whole career. He created this stuff. He said, Carmine, leadership is more important than ever. I said, well, why? What do, you, what do you mean? He goes, no matter what we do, uh, AI can replace a lot of simple you know, tasks and, and functions that a human can do. But nobody's going to want to get a pep talk from a machine. No one wants to hear a speech from a machine. A machine cannot ignite. That's where I got ignite your imagination. A machine can't help you uh, dream bigger than ever. A machine can't make you more innovative and, um, and creative and inspire you in ways that, and, and to help you think about the world in a completely different way. Machines can't do that. So here, here was this quote that I think was fabulous. Carmine, if you want to be a great leader, let machines be machines and let humans be humans. In other words, Aiden, it does kind of get back to what you just said. If you want to succeed in the next 10 to 20 years as AI continues to take its place in the world and replace a lot of the tasks that humans were doing, 
it's more important to get back to being human than ever before. It's kind of a deep philosophical place to be, but I, I, I understand where he's going with that, don't you? It's beautiful. It's a beautiful way to finish up as well, Carmine. And, and I know you coach a lot of C-suite executives, consultants, CEOs in the art of storytelling. So if they want to get in touch with you and find out more about your work and how to access your storytelling workshops, how can they get in touch? I am a public speaker, so I do keynote speeches around the world for uh, consultancies. And I've spoken at McKinsey and Accenture and many other brands around the world. I've written nine books. I'm on social media. You can contact me directly. I think the easiest way of doing it is if you just remember my name. If you can remember a good Italian name like Carmine Gallo. (laughs) Gallo is G-A-L-L-O. So Carmine Gallo. Uh, You can reach me on the internet very easily. It's CarmineGallo.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at Carmine Gallo. So just try to remember the name, and you can find me on the internet. The book, Five Stars, has its own website that's really beautifully done. We have videos and all sorts of content. That's simply called TheFiveStarsBook.com, but you can reach it, again, just by remembering my name, Carmine Gallo. It's been an honor speaking to you, author of Five Stars, The Communication Secrets to Get from Good to Great, Carmine Gallo. Thank you for joining us. Aiden, thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it.